0: Welcome to the Union News Podcast. The UK's only One Union show, produced for your downloadable digital delight. And appreciation. In this episode, International TUC Deputy General Secretary Owen Tudor on what international solidarity means in practice, plus Mel Sims on a green budget opportunity missed, and Josiah Mortimer's Radical Roundup. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper and here we have a snappy sassy show for you as ever. We've got Mel Sims in her thought for the week who's going to be talking about why the budget was a missed opportunity in terms of a green transformation. We've got Josiah Mortimer's Radical Roundup, all the stories that you may well have missed from the mainstream media that affect trade unions and the work that we do. And our special guest this episode is Owen Tudor, Deputy General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation, talking about international solidarity and organising on a global scale. We'll hear from all our guests in just a moment, but right from the off front and centre, I wanna give a plug to the Health Service Unions, who are reacting with absolute disbelief and horror at the government's announcement that they're slating a 1% pay rise for NHS staff. And the government thinks they're being generous. And Tory MPs are saying, "Well, we this is very good news. We're surprised that there's a kickback. It just shows how tone deaf politicians can be sometimes. Now, the government has put a 1% increase in its budget. It's referred the matter to the pay review body which advises the government on appropriate rates of pay for a very wide range of NHS grades. I bet you that actually the pay review body will come back to government with a recommendation for something that's around 2%. And the government will say, "Well, yeah, okay, we have to we have to cede to this recommendation from the pay review body." And we'll all feel grateful because we've got 2% instead of 1%. Hmm. And then, you, of course, you get the debate about where does the additional 1% get taken from in order to balance the budget? I mean, that's a different debate, probably for a different podcast as well, but that's what I reckon is going to happen. Now, in the meantime, Unison, new General Secretary, Christine McInaeus has said, I tell you what we'll do. Thursday, the 11th of March, Thursday, the 1st of April, let's have a slow hand clap to show the government exactly what the people of Britain think about this. 8pm on your doorsteps or your balconies, a slow handcap to show just what you think of a 1% pay rise for the most frontline of frontline staff. <sighs> Here's Josiah with the rest of this week's industrial news in his radical roundup.
1: Thanks, Simon. First up, Unite says it's mobilising a standing army of 30,000 workplace reps to promote the benefits of the COVID-19 vaccines to workplaces across the UK. United is particularly keen to assist those hard-to-reach groups which have been worst hit by the virus, but who might need more reassurance about vaccine safety. The union also repeated its call for an urgent uplift in statutory sick pay, stating that the country needs more than one club in its bag to beat the disease. The union has produced a raft of promotional campaign materials, including films for its million-plus membership across the UK, urging workers and their loved ones to get a jab. Next up, the Green Party of England and Wales has backed trade union calls for a 15% pay rise for all NHS health and care staff. Members overwhelmingly backed the proposal at the party's virtual conference, with the call coming in response to the government's recommendations for NHS staff to be given a pay rise of just 1%. When taking into account inflation, that amounts to a real terms pay cut. Both Unite and GMB, unions which represent health workers, are calling for a 10% pay rise. The government's facing mounting pressure to concede to union demands, with Unite and Nursing Union, the Royal College of Nursing, understood to be considering balloting its members for strike action. And now, energy companies are exposing staff to unnecessary COVID risks, the Unison Union has said. The UK's leading energy suppliers, including many of the big six, are needlessly forcing staff to enter up to 80 homes a day each during the pandemic to take metre readings. The union is calling on the government to intervene and class metre reading as non-essential work. Of the dozens of energy suppliers, only British Gas has stopped in-home readings in England and Wales. The Scottish Government has already recognised the clear risk to both employees and homeowners and stopped readings until further notice. It's not all rosy at British Gas, however. Engineers there walked out for their 27th day of strike action last Friday, after they overwhelmingly rejected a revised offer from the company at ACAS. Thousands took part in the ballot, with more than three quarters of gas and electrical engineers voting against a deal from the company after the firm decided to take its fire and rehire plan off the table. The workers down tools for four days, returning to work this Tuesday. GMB's executive has ruled that action could continue to mid-April in this deadlock dispute. And finally, we report on new research from Unite, which has proposed a new industrial strategy for post-Brexit trade. A report from the union calls for a fresh approach to support coordination between reps across industries and Unite sectors at the workplace level. It finds the vast majority of Unite reps interviewed see a threat to their site from Brexit, putting jobs and conditions at risk. Unite reps want to see a new collective bargaining strategy across sectors to benefit workers throughout supply chains and to counter the industrial impact of trade. Good news though, the majority of reps also reported using digital tools to organise in the pandemic, with two-thirds reporting a positive experience with these tools, suggesting they could help sustain supply chain coordination. And that's it from this week's Radical Roundup on the Union Jews podcast. Catch the full Radical Roundup on leftfootforward.org on Wednesday. And back to you, Simon. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Josiah. And don't forget, Mel Sims will be with us later in the show for her thought for the week, all about how the budget is a missed opportunity for a green transformation of the economy. But now to our special guest, Owen Tudor. I've known Owen for many, many years, and I was delighted that he agreed to come on the show to talk about his still relatively new role as one of the Deputy General Secretaries at the International Trade Union Confederation, a huge global trade union organisation. And we spoke about lots of things, how you work on a global level, what international solidarity means in reality, and the Save Lives at Work campaign that he's spearheading. Here he is. Owen Tudor, Deputy General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation. Very welcome to the Union Jews podcast. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So, uh, Owen, I think perhaps the the place to start is, is especially for listeners who aren't familiar with the international trade union landscape, is, is, I mean, the ITUC is a phenomenal organisation, 200 million workers through... Uh, 332 national trade union centres across 163 countries. Astonishing. But it's not the... I mean, how does it work, and how do you interrelate with other global trade union bodies? Well, I've been doing it for two years, so when I find
2: out how it works, (laughs) I'll let you (laughs) know.
0: Not intuitive, then.
2: (laughs) No, I often... uh, Have started saying to people that if we were a country, we would be uh, certainly one of the ten biggest in the world. And uh, and actually, since we're made up entirely of uh, of, uh, of adults, actually we're we're one of the top two or three countries in the world in that sense, in terms of adults. So so it is absolutely mammoth. And and we actually refer to countries and territories as well. If you ever look up on the web which countries there are. Uh, you will get lots of different answers because there are members of the United Nations, there are organisations which have state functions, all that sort of stuff. So, so the world itself is very complicated. The trade union movement, in some ways, doubly so, but actually, all united by the fact that in reality, people at work have the same problems wherever they are, and uh, and a lot, a, a lot has changed over time. And that sometimes is a bit a bit like distance. I, I have told people for many years that my my maternal grandfather was a street seller. Uh, he used to pick up bread from a bakery in the morning and he had to go out and sell it. and if he didn't sell it, he didn't get any money for it. you know he would he would pay over the money. Um, My uncle and aunt on my father's side were domestic workers uh, at a time when domestic work was a huge part of the economy. But they weren't in some developing country or anything like that. The grandfather was in Cardiff and the uncle and aunt were in Plymouth. It's, it's distance that, that very often separates different experiences of work time rather than geography. So the, the International Trade Union movement, to answer your actual question, is is made up of um, that there is the International Trade Union Confederation, which with various antecedents has been around for over 100 years. The TUC in Britain has been a part of that all the way through. There have been different international organisations over the years. There is still a predominantly state-funded institution called the World federation of trade unions the ituc was formed about 14 15 years ago as a as, as partly a merger between what used to be the international confederation of free trade unions and the world confederation of labor which was a predominantly christian trade union body uh, although we also pulled in some uh, some other trade unions at the time to make a wholly new organization we represent essentially national trade union centers so right. in in the uk the tuc there are also a whole load of structures at sectoral level called global union federations to which uh, individual trade unions in Britain would affiliate. So, you know, you've got a transport workers federation actually based in Southwark, as it happens, to which people like Unite and RMT and so on are affiliated. There's the Public Services International, which, which Unison is obviously the biggest affiliate to. There's uh, a private services sector organisation organisation. Uh, a manufacturing organisation uh, down to smaller organisations like the international federation of journalists right. and, and musicians even have their own their own institution And and so there's lots of work that, uh, you know, we work in in concert, we have a body called the Council of Global Unions, where we all meet up. And there are also other international trade union organisations, such as, for instance, we have a body called the Trade Union Advisory Committee to the OECD, which has an automatic input to the OECD's work, but is a wholly independent trade union structure. And then there are other regional organisations, there's the European Trade Union Confederation, which is, a rather different beast because it covers a particular supranational government institution, the EU, but the ITUC has regional organizations covering Africa, the Americas, a sub-regional one covering the Arab world, the Asia-Pacific, uh, and a pan-European regional council, which brings together ETUC members in Western Europe and stretches all the way to Vladivostok in the east. Wow. And so, so, there's lots of those different organisations, and then there are even smaller sub-regional federations, the East Africa Trade Union Confederation, things like that. The Caribbean Labour Council.
0: I mean, you know, I I understand absolutely the need for. Uh, supranational global federations to interface with organizations like the OECD, the UN, ILO, and and so on. And I understand the value of coordination and of sharing information, disseminating best practice, but is there not a risk that there are so many different elements and stakeholders to coordinate that the coordination actually eclipses any output from from that? How, How does an organization like the ITUC manage that challenge?
2: So number one, keep our focus on what will assist working people in their daily lives. That's our absolute number one objective, is to improve working people's daily lives. And as long as you put that front and centre, then a lot of the other coordination stuff just becomes something that you actually have to do. At the moment, for instance, the International Trade Union Confederation has five priorities. They are jobs, rights, equality... Social protection and inclusion, which covers particular issues of uh, of peace and and so on. So, so, so those are our ob- objectives. They can be fairly easily addressed to individual people's individual working lives. Obviously, they they act on them collectively and so on so we put those front and center and then different people can help do different things and help deliver different things we try not to spend all of our lives in meetings i mean one of the ways that we do that by the way is you know the the uh, one of one of my culture shifts moving from the tuc with this annual weekly week-long conference by the seaside in britain to the international trade union confederation which only meets as a as a group every four years so you know so we try and do it more more lightly. One of the experiences of, of the pandemic has been an, an enormous shift to doing a lot of that work online. Yes, And the time we spend talking to each other in international institutions and things like that is very often quite useful. The time we used to spend flying to the meetings, very often not so much. <laughs> And, and and that we've been able to cut out by doing so much of our work online. And it's something that we will continue to do uh, even after the pandemic.
0: Quite, yeah, quite I mean, on a nation state level, I know the trade unions I talk to here are just liberated by not having to spend so much tra- traveling time. So on, when you get to a, a kind of global scale or an international scale, like, an app, you know, it must be huge. Dividend must be huge.
2: One of the things I always used to say was that if you actually look at trade union structures, most of which actually derive from the late 19th century, they're, they're quite often guided by the fact that, well, you had to pull everyone together in one place to have a discussion and so you have annual conferences where representatives of union members go along to them because you couldn't all go indeed and actually that whole representative structure is based on the fact that you needed to travel because we invented most of our
0: structures before the telephone absolutely it's it's strange how legacy issues like that continue to loom large over the way we organize the way we do do our work in terms of the specific campaigns under those five main headings Owen I know the save lives at work uh, issue is is close to your heart and is a major concern for the ITUC. What what is that campaign and and what's it seeking to achieve? So the main thing that we're seeking
2: to allow, uh, to achieve is saving lives at work. As as you know, sort of the hashtag says on the tin. You know, actually yeah. exactly the hashtag is uh, is designed to say everything about what we're what we're trying to do. I, it, it is a staggering and just ghastly tragic figure. Every minute of every day of every year around the world, five people die as a result of their work. My goodness. Every minute. That is And shocking. that's an enormous toll that needs to come down. And the, and the really worrying thing is that, you know, sort of obviously people die of all sorts of things all the time. And, you know, sort of it's sort of inherent in living. But, but every one of those workplace deaths is preventable. None of them actually had to happen. You know, they could all have been prevented if people had taken the, the steps that are required to deal with that. So that's what Save Lives at Work is about. The way we want to deliver that initially is we're trying to persuade governments and employers globally through the International Labour Organization, which brings all those people together from all of the countries of the, of the world to make uh, occupational health and safety a, what's known as a fundamental right at work. Right. At the moment, the fundamental rights are freedom from child labour, freedom from forced labour, freedom from discrimination at the workplace, and, the, and freedom of association, i.e., the freedom to join a trade mm. union and, and engage in collective bargaining. We want to add occupational health and safety to that list. It is long overdue, and what that change would affect... Would, would Would it would be giving it? it, I mean, it would have some direct effects automatically. There are loads of trade agreements around the world uh, and supply chain agreements which say we will we we will incorporate the fundamental rights. If you just add a fundamental right, it automatically knocks on into all of those uh, all of those agreements. Yeah. But probably more importantly, what it will do is it will give an impetus. To action by governments, employers, and unions to do more about prevention, having more safety reps at the workplace, having more safety committees, doing more to tackle health and safety problems rather than simply,
0: you know, sort of record another death in the, in the register. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot that can be done by designing in hardwiring in safety. And you're right, I, I think when you talk about supply chains as being a, a, a way into this, because if you have a supply chain agreement that says you will get X quantity of goods from place A to place B at the speed of sound, you're putting a huge pressure and a huge risk on the people who who produce or, or gather in the stuff, and the people who transport it. Um, and of course, you know, while uh, lobbying of the ILO continues, there's nothing to stop trade sectors or nation states moving on this them, themselves. So, yeah, given the no. given given the difficulty, not the difficulty, given given the fact that I guess the ILO, like the ITUC, it doesn't meet in permanent session. There are only certain windows in which to make a decision when's the earliest that the ILO could could make a decisive move on this not as i say not that that not that one is utterly dependent on that for success but when when could it be I- inserted in that way the decision to move on this was taken at the 2019 uh, international
2: labor conference which was its centenary conference it was you know 100 years since it was since it was founded, it, it, uh, one of the decisions it took was to make health and safety a fundamental right. But to give effect to that mm. decision has taken a little bit longer because, frankly, of employer foot dragging on the issue. And um, The ILO's governing body, which again is a tripartite body, uh, trade unionists, employers and governments, are meeting in Geneva uh, in a few days' time. Uh, to decide the agenda for the twenty twenty one annual conference of the ILO and the twenty twenty two conference. At the moment, employers and governments are trying to suggest that we should take this decision in twenty twenty two. We're saying, why wait? Uh, you know, sort of. I, I, remember that the, the decision to do this was essentially taken before the pandemic. Yeah. Since then, COVID nineteen has demonstrated above any doubt that that health and safety is fundamental to the way people do their jobs. Uh, And so we're saying you can do it at the 2021 conference in in June, which itself will be a virtual conference. I mean, it's entirely possible to do these things virtually and to reach agreements virtually in, you know, sort of in, in cyberspace. So we're saying do it now The alternative is doing it next year. But as you say, no reason not to start acting like it's a fundamental right as soon as possible. Uh, On the 28th of April, uh, trade unionists around the world Celebrate isn't quite the right word. Commemorate,
0: commemorate,
2: International Mm. Workers' Memorial Day, and we've given the theme of health and safety being a fundamental right. That's the that's the focus of our activity around that day. Now you mentioned supply chains. Obviously, that's that's one of the examples of global trade unionists, global trade unionism in action, because we are sort of you know sort of in in if you're talking about food, it's farm to fork. If you're talking about sort of you know, um production of, uh, of of clothing. It's from the cotton farms in Uzbekistan to the factories in, in Bangladesh to, you know, sort of the, the people transporting the goods around, the International Transport Workers Federation that I mentioned, to the people selling it to you, either in a, an offline or an online shop and and because trade unionists bring all those people together we're in a perfect position to to track that supply chain and make sure that the employers who are in, involved in every stage of that supply chain are also reminded of their responsibilities and one of our other campaigns at the moment is to re, is to get action at the ilo at the oecd through their multinational enterprise guidelines through and, and through a un treaty on due diligence on companies making sure that they abide by uh, legal requirements and collectively
0: bargained agreements all the way through their supply chains mm. well i mean that i mean if anyone doubts the need for a global perspective in trade union terms, you just have to listen back to the last couple of minutes of our conversation because you can't ensure that the work of voice, the work of view is is heard and is respected in any other way other than by organizing globally when you've got global supply change to deal with for for example. And I think that's a very, a very strong illustration. What are the sort of things that that either the ITUC is either aware of or is asking to happen then for Workers' Memorial Day this year? Because it's only, well, it's only as we're talking, it's only about six or seven weeks away now, so not too early for people to start thinking about it.
2: Oh, absolutely and there are lots of you know sort of lots of local trade unionists and union branches around uh, the UK but also all over the world who who already uh, mark this day so you could do something that is purely commemorative uh, you know sort of a lot of uh, organizations simply you know, lay a wreath or plant a tree or do something like mm. that but but not not on their own, you know, sort of as a way of getting publicity for the argument and so on. But we also regularly ask people, Carry out a safety inspection at your workplace. Yeah. Actually, get yeah. the safety reps to go round and identify what some of the problems are and what can what can be done about those things. Hold a public meeting if those are possible by the by the end of April in the in the UK. Um, you know, but, mm-hmm. make, your unlikely, but- to, yeah, well, <laughs> make your case. Yeah, uh, well, make your case on on the media and in particular on social media. Uh, we have we have a very. Uh, I, I mean, actually, strangely enough last year which was at the beginning of the uh, of the pandemic we had the biggest ever mobilization for international workers memorial day that we've ever had and we can't help feeling that one of the reasons for that was that people actually were able to connect with each other without having to set up a meeting or something like that or go somewhere special they could do it from uh, from their workplace which in that case was very often
0: Uh, their home well uh, but also I think that, that suddenly everyone's realized the importance as you say of health and safety at work and everyone has of necessity I suppose been empowered to to think about just the everyday things they do in a different way from a health and safety perspective because the threat is real and and, and ever-present everywhere. <laughs> so, so you know, in terms of safe ways of working, everything from washing your hands to wearing PPE to changing the way you interact with, with people, that affects everyone, everyone. And, 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 and if,
2: if, for instance, you're working from home, then, you know, a lot of the things that, that, for instance, office workers take for granted about the fact that their employer will, I mean, to be honest, very often only because they've been pressed to do it by a union safety mm. rep, their employer will make sure that the desk they're sat at is ergonomically not going to give them back screen or something like that. Once they're once they're back at home. What do they do about that? How do you deal with that? So unions have been putting a lot of work over the last year for those people working at home, to actually look at sort of making sure that the 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 work off the workplace that people have got at home is is ergonomically sound, isn't going to cause them even you know other problems. And of course, there's the issue of isolation, which people have been, have been suffering when they've been working at yeah. home. But, but obviously, for many people at work, it's it's those frontline workers who are actually still engaged in interacting with the public and therefore exposing themselves to, to risk. But There was a, a landmark study in New York which found that the residents of an aged uh, home care facility were 33% less likely to contract COVID if the nursing home was union-organised than if it wasn't you wow, great step. it wasn't that is it a wasn't great the, it wasn't even the fact that you know sort of we've we've got loads of statistics going back from years demonstrating that unionized workplaces are safer the, for their workforce of course, than uh, the non-union ones a studies just come out again from Ontario in Canada for instance showing that in large workplaces they are up to 45 percent safer if there's a union present, but that fact about the uh, the nursing homes demonstrates that union safety reps and union environments actually make the customers, in this case, yeah. the, the residents of the of the home safer as well, because of all the things that we that,
0: that our people put in place in terms of preventive uh, and protective protective measures. Absolutely. I mean, I wonder, do you see on an international level, Owen, I mean, a sort of um, an organising dividend uh from from COVID, which is a kind of, you know, difficult thing to say. Uh, but but nevertheless, as you'll know, in, in the in the UK, unions have very much been on the front foot in terms of contributing to public policy, being very innovative about how they continue to to support members and have seen generally an increase in union membership. Is that is that replicated on an international level or is it are actually the questions of distance and circumstance so diverse that you can't really pick it up?
2: No. Nope you can pick it up uh, 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 obviously a large number of people have been losing their jobs as a result of the pandemic and that very often impacts on union membership and so on so we've always got to be cautious about this and and recognize that that uh, that, that very often actually uh, you know j- just as many workers are facing safety issues or, as a result of the pandemic many more are uh, uh, facing the loss of their jobs the ILO estimates up to 400 million jobs lost around the world as a whole uh, more than a billion informal sector workers economically impacted by the effects of the pandemic so so enormous economic shocks around the world that have caused enormous problems for union organization but one of the things we have noticed all over the world we were uh, we we've done a series of surveys about what unions have been doing and they have really stepped up i mean you know i've never been prouder of the trade union movement than seeing how they've reacted to the to the pandemic and what they've delivered and, and very often in, you know, in workplace after workplace all over the world, uh, what unions have been able to demonstrate during the pandemic is that there is only one person who has got the back of the workers, and that's the union. And, and they've been able to secure all sorts of things, I uh, you know, sort of from, you know, whether it's the, the extension of the furlough scheme in Britain, which actually originally was uh, was a, a union, you know, something that Francis O'Grady went and crossed swords with Rishi Sunak about at the at the beginning of the pandemic uh, and now continuing it as well. That is an enormous boost to, to people. And, and unions are finding that they, they're getting the result of that. But... So partly it's just, well, unions are delivering for working people and working people are responding by joining unions in greater numbers. So there are actually parts of the world where there are now more trade union members than there were a year ago because of the effects of the pandemic. Very often, by the way, in those parts of the world where union membership had been declining up until mm. now in, in 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 developed economies. In developing economies, it is a much more difficult situation because so many people have been losing their jobs and their livelihood. But if you look at the Nigeria, for instance, where our global president comes from, uh, is the, the 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 president of the Nigeria Labour Congress. They have negotiated. A whole raft of measures with the government that have protected people's jobs, protected people's incomes, and they're seeing a response in terms of union uh, greater union membership. There is another aspect, however, to the pandemic, which we touched on earlier, which is also being used by unions, which is that the intervention of new technology. And the fact that whereas, of course, you know, sort of the the traditional union recruitment exercises, you go round a workplace and you 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 get people to sign the union card and all that sort of stuff because people aren't in workplaces as much in a number of places, the example we had of of Fijian teachers, for instance, where the the union was having enormous difficulty getting access to the workplace. But as soon as everyone was sent home, well, they could go to the local village and they could recruit in the local village without having to go near the workplace uh, and, and and be kept away by, by the employer. And, and in, in other uh, circumstances, unions have turned enormously to recruiting people online. Now, you know, sort of back at the TUC, Francis and I actually ran a project 20 odd years ago of trying to get unions to switch to online recruitment (laughs) and so on. And so, you know, a couple of years ago when my son went to work, he was he was slightly, slightly surprised to find that he could find a union application form on the website, but he had to print it off. To fill it in and submit it to the the union concerned, I will spare their blushes by not mentioning which union (laughs) it was. But but sort of so unions have shifted enormously to, to doing it online. And one crucial thing that has also impacted unions during this time is that they have they have. Relearned, in fact, it's not learned. This is not new. Uh, And organizers, the best organizers, have always known it, have always operated this way. The best way to recruit someone to the trade union movement, uh, we used to say the best way was to ask them. Actually, it isn't, it's to listen the best way to recruit people into the union is to listen to them to find out what they think what they want and then deliver it for them and 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 give it to them and actually the the fact that online meetings and online engagement is is very much more often two way than the sort of you know standing on a stage with a megaphone mm. or something like that has actually encouraged a number of unions around the world to get involved rather more in listening to potential members, rather than talking to them,
0: I mean, yeah, absolutely. The people, we,
2: the people we want to talk to are the employers, because we want to convey the messages that our members are telling us to those employers and saying, "This is what you need to do to meet our members' needs."
0: Yeah, there's an irony, isn't there? In the in the sense that the challenge of distance is absolutely, uh, you know, is absolutely transformed when you can meet virtually, and the problems of isolation are also transformed by actually being able to meet virtually. I mean, what kind of one last question really before we, we wrap up? And and I mean I thank you for I about mean, your, your enthusiasm is infectious. But that may not you, be quite such a good thing now in the current climate, <laughs> Actually infectious versus choose a different uh, choose a different word perhaps. But as you said earlier in our discussion, you've been in your current role for a, for a little more than, than two years. And before that you were you were at the TUC. What's the what's the main difference between working within a national trade union centre as opposed to working for an international trade union centre, or isn't there any?
2: Um, actually, surprisingly few. When when I was when I was doing the handover with my predecessor as the deputy general secretary at the ITUC, it, uh, he was an, an an old Dutch trade unionist who'd been doing it for a while, and he started taking me through all sorts of things about how the job operated, and I said. So, you mean it's exactly the same as the job I was doing back in Britain? and, and uh, i mean so there are huge differences you know in terms of people's personal experiences and so on if you're you know so i i, I was at one of my uh, sort of early experiences in in this job was addressing a group of strikers in turkey uh at a, at a meeting i I'd, I'd actually gone there to talk to a tripartite conference organized by the turkish employers but there was a uh, there was a, a a local industrial dispute going on at the the time and obviously you don't want to just fly in talk mm. to the employers and the government and fly out again without interacting with some actual workers so i went along to the picket line and spoke at there spoke at that at, at, at that picket line i have no idea if they had any real idea who i was or you know or what i was doing there but they were grateful for the support um and and so you know, so their their experience of of Australia, I, I sort of said, well, this is Turkey, isn't isn't it a bit you know sort of? I, I wasn't personally worried, but isn't isn't there a bit of danger about picketing? And they said, no, 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 we have a legal right to do this sort of stuff in Turkey. And you go, well, that's odd. I'm not sure you'd have a legal right to do what you're doing in Britain. You know, yeah. sort of. It's uh, so so. There are lots of different experiences, and and I've spoken at, at, at mass rallies in India. Now, a mass rally in Britain is a different thing from a mass rally in India. Yeah, not, there's a question not, of scale,
0: I would there imagine. There's a question
2: of scale. But there's also because every time sort of, you know, a new delegation arrived, they would march into the the, the rally with their band going yeah. and all that sort of stuff. You know, it was like it was like that sort of trying to address the Durham Miners Gala or, or the Tolpuddle Martyrs rally. But actually not once everyone's been nice and sat down and started listening to the speeches, you would actually be putting the two things together. The march and the speeches would be happening all at the same time and so on. There is a relationship with our affiliates. And they are people who, you know, maybe on a, a different level, different geographical level, are representing larger groups of people and so on. But, but they are fundamentally all representing people at work with the same problems yeah. as, as they have. There are issues of language and there are issues about how cultures of trade unionism have evolved and are different and things like that. But to be honest, I went to the first conference of Unite when it had uh, been constructed out of a merger of essentially three unions, several of which had been themselves the product of merger, and the differences of culture existed within just a British and Irish organisation that had come together from different industries. Uh, these things sort of you know sort of affect you whether it's whether you're trying to put together a print worker and a finance worker or uh, a worker from the, the Pacific Islands and a worker from a nuclear power plant in, in America. Uh, they're all workers at the end of the day
0: and they all want the same thing out of their union. Owen Tudor, thank you very much indeed. My thanks to Owen for a genuinely wide-ranging discussion. We went halfway around the world, didn't we? And it's very interesting to get that global perspective on what unions can do and how they can uh, engage with each other, coordinate, collaborate, to monitor things like supply chains that cross international boundaries. Then, of course, there's the I suppose unsurprising statistics that union workplaces are safer for customers and clients as well, as well as the as well as employees and sitting above all this, the reason why we do the stuff that we do, which is the appalling level of avoidable, preventable deaths at work. An ongoing campaign for sure you can find all the resources all the background information all the signposting you need if you head over to the makes you website and look in the blog section you'll find the companion blog to this podcast all the organizations and all the interactions all the stuff that Owen and I were talking about much more information there now it's time for thought for the week with Mel Sims professor of work and employment at the University of Glasgow This week, Mel takes a look at the budget and ponders whether or not it really is the vehicle for a green transformation or whether it's just another missed opportunity.
3: This week I've been thinking about the importance of unions to green jobs. The UK's finance minister, or as we rather archaically call him, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, announced the budget to Parliament this week. And it was a real missed opportunity to incentivise green jobs in the recovery as we eventually move away from the Covid pandemic. He did announce a number of measures to address climate change, including investment bonds that will allow people to invest in schemes that support green projects. And living in Scotland, it was also notable to me that there were uh, continued plans to invest to support the Aberdeen area, which has historically been at the heart of the oil and gas industries in the UK, uh, and to support the transition away from oil and gas towards environmental technologies. And these are undoubtedly important initiatives, Uh, they're essential in creating and supporting good jobs to replace those strategically important and high value industries but they're a long way from putting green jobs at the heart of the economic and social recovery beyond the COVID pandemic. And unions really need to be at the center of campaigning for those developments. There are real opportunities, for example, to invest in improving the environmental efficiency of the UK's aging housing stock. And it would require state support both to develop the technologies but also for the skills around installation of those uh, technologies. But it would undoubtedly yield essential progress towards the UK's climate change goals and, of course, would create a large number of good jobs. There are also real opportunities for governments to support areas such as offshore wind, electric vehicle production, improvement of transport infrastructure and carbon capture, for example. All of those need unions to be at the table ensuring that the UK's workforce is appropriately skilled and able to adapt to the challenges that would be necessary, all the way through from blue sky science through to the installation and application of successful technologies. The absence of measures to specifically address workforce changes in this week's budget was both disappointing and a really considerable missed opportunity. Campaign organisations, including the union movement, need to be keep being very, very clear about the mutual gains to workers, to the economy, to society and, of course, to the world's climate of a green jobs budget in the future. And to keep emphasising the fact that we can't continue to keep kicking the can down the road.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Mel. Uh, Another fine contribution. I'd hope you agree, listeners. Links to more information about a green transformation can be found in the blog post that accompanies this podcast. That's over on the makesyouthink.com website. But the whole issue of a green transformation, what the trade union interest in that is, what the involvement needs to be to make the transition effective, I think that's something we're going to come back to. I think that would make a very interesting, riveting, necessary podcast episode do you agree we'd like to hear your views on that and anything else you've heard on the show Well, we're nearly out of time for this week's episode, but as usual, I just want to give a shout out to my friends and colleagues in the Labour Radio Podcast Network, a portal through which you can access over 70 trade union linked shows. You can access that at LabourRadioNetwork.org, and I do hope you'll pay them a visit soon and see just what a wide range of material is available out there, including including an excellent piece that Chris Garlock from the Union City radio show has put together of Pete Seeger singing that absolute classic Solidarity Forever, but overlaid with some of the comments from President Biden that are very much pro-Union, pro-Labour. You can hear a sample from that song after the closing credits to this show. It's been a pleasure to have your company for this last half hour or so. I really hope you've enjoyed the show. It's made you think, given you some food for thought, if you want to comment on anything, if you've got ideas for future guests on the show, if you want to follow up any of the issues we've discussed, you can, as you know, email us at unionjews, it makes you think, .com, tweet us at jewsunion. Please, please rate us on the podcast platform of your choice. It really is very much appreciated and helps boost the reach of the show no end. You can also subscribe to receive automatic updates whenever a new episode of the show is released, which could be particularly important in the coming weeks because sadly this is the last episode of the present series we've covered an awful lot of ground in the last eight weeks or so we will be back all things being equal for series four in a couple of months or so and in between now and then we may well have the odd special to throw your way as well if you subscribe you will know exactly what's happening and get links to the episodes just as soon as they are released So a heartfelt thanks to Owen, but particularly to Mel and to Josiah for their fantastic contributions week after week. I hope you've enjoyed them as much as I've had. My thanks, as I say, to you for listening, for sharing, for streaming, for rating, for emailing, for tweeting. Without you, this show would be nothing. I'm very excited because I've just had the chance to book my COVID jab. I hope that opportunity comes to all of us, all of you listening and your friends and family, just as soon as is possible. So, in the meantime, take good care, watch out for each other, be kind, and I'll see you around on the next episode of Union Jews. The Union Jews podcast is presented by me, Simon Sappho. It is a Makes You Think production.
4: America wasn't built by Wall Street. It was built by the middle class, and unions built the middle class. Unions put power in the hands of workers. They level the playing field. They give you a stronger voice for your health, your safety, higher wages, protections from racial discrimination and sexual harassment. Unions lift up workers, both union and non-union, and especially black and brown workers. The National Labor Relations Act didn't just say that unions are allowed to exist. It said that we should encourage unions. So let me be really clear. It's not up to me to decide whether anyone should join a union. But let me be even more clear. It's not up to an employer to decide that either. The choice to join a union is up to the workers. Full stop. Full stop. Today and over the next few days and weeks, workers in Alabama...